Welcome to episode 332 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Have you wondered how I was able to launch a book on March 13th and have it receive over 200 Amazon reviews by the end of the month? You're in luck. I'm offering a free Book Launch Strategies Masterclass in May, but the catch is it's only open to members of my launch team. The good news is it's not too late to write a review for Breakout of Boredom, Low Tech Solutions for Highly Engaging Zoom Events, and I'm aiming to have over 300 reviews before the end of May. Currently, I'm about 220 or so into that. If you're willing to commit to writing a review, sign up for my book launch team at robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch. Collectively, my three independently published books have received over 650 Amazon reviews and reached number one bestseller in 29 categories across the US, UK, Canada, and Australia. It's not simple or easy, but it is something you can learn how to do for your own book launch or relaunch. The best part is those reviewers actually read my book and found it helpful, so they're in a better position to refer me for speaking, training, or virtual event production opportunities. That's really the reason to push for over 100 reviews. Launching a book is a great way to wake up your network. Sign up at robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch, and I'll send you the invite for my free book launch strategies masterclass. Are you hearing about this after May, 2023? Reach out and I'll share how to purchase the replay of this masterclass. Now onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a marketing maven leveraging technology to create stable recurring revenue streams. She's an accomplished serial entrepreneur with six and seven figure businesses. She co-founded Video Rockstars and the Stark Raving Entrepreneurs, helping thought leaders monetize their messages. She co-authored the McGraw-Hill book, Clout Matters, How to Engage Your Audience, Boost Your Digital Influence, and Raise Your Clout Score back in 2013. And she has contributed numerous articles to Speaker Magazine, the Town Laker Magazine, and other publications on the topics of marketing, technology, and influence. She's a longtime member of the National Speakers Association, NSA, and the CEO of TEDx Dupree Park and the creator and host of TEDx Dupree Park TV. She's also been named a top marketing thought leader over 50 by Brand Quarterly and is a who's who among women in e-commerce by We Magazine. Please join me in welcoming Gina Carr. Gina, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Ravi. I'm delighted to be here. And we in our Video Rockstars and Star Craving Entrepreneurs programs have enjoyed so much when you've been one of our guest presenters. You've brought such wisdom to us, including about your most recent book, and you've just been a, a superstar in our community. Yeah, no, it's been great uh, just being able to support you and Terry and what you're doing. And uh, thrilled that he was in the show recently. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. So as you know, this is a show about building strong networks, but the context has been leadership. And as you would agree, you know, no one achieves success in a vacuum. So, so tell me, 
how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Mm. Well, how I define leadership is based on an old adage. It's an old African proverb. It says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I add my car corollary. I say, if you want to go further, faster, build a tribe, right? So, <laughs> so get that tribe going. And with having people who are engaged in your vision, who have bought into the vision of the future that, you, that you've set, then you paint that picture. I, I think it was Seth Godin, and I know you interviewed him not too long ago. Um, he says, paint a picture of the future and invite people to go with you on that future. One of my favorite books is his tribe's book. And so I have definitely embraced that. Um, how, when did I first, well, I was, I, I was a leader. Gosh, you know, maybe going back to fourth or fifth grade, I think I was elected as the vice president of the 4-H club. And I remember they brought all the students in from the local elementary schools. And so we were all learning together and all this, all the kids, my friends around me said, Gina, ask them this. Gina, ask them that. And I'm thinking, why are they asking me to ask something? And I think that kind of combination of being elected to my first office and also seeing that people, for some reason, had faith in me that I would represent them well with what they wanted, um, that was life-changing, really. Yeah, I love that you rolled back the clock to that point. And I want to revisit that in a moment, but your definition, it really speaks to me as well of leadership, right? This idea that, you know, it's about building that community. Uh, it's building people, like all being served together on a mission, you know, um, that one that they, they buy into and they understand, they, they know their purpose in it. They understand the, the overall goal. And it sounds like the work you've been doing is really about helping gather those people together. So they all know how to get further faster. And I, and I just really appreciate that you didn't start with like, when I was in my late 20s, my first major career, you know, like that's what everyone does when I talk about leadership, but you're like, no, 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 there was a moment. Cause I'm always curious, like, what were you like on the playground? You know, were you organizing people? Was that why you were chosen in fourth and fifth grade to, to lead in this way, in this more formal recognition role? Like, were you already informally doing that? I, I don't recall doing that. I do recall being active in the playground and, um, I, I don't I don't recall necessarily being in much of a leadership role in on the playground. Maybe I was. I I loved kickball. <laughs> <laughs> but were you the one who brought the ball? No. So um <laughs> so that's cool. But but um now 4H for those who uh aren't familiar has a wide array of activities. What were the stuff that you were mostly keen on in 4H? Oh boy, it's so long ago. as I recall, it was uh there was a division about gardening and we had a garden in our backyard and I spent a lot of time in the summers with my cousins in their garden. They had a big farm. And so that was my, my main area of interest. How about you? Were you in 4-H when no, you were My young? wife was in 4-H and I of course thought 4-H was all like animals and husbandry. And I don't know. I didn't, what do I know? I'm like a suburban kid, but she was all into more of the crafts. And the craft and the cooking. But her mom was a real gardener. Her dad was a cook. So like she had all those influences. And 4-H was a big part of her, her growing up. So, I mean, it's just a really cool experience. And then for you within that experience to be given sort of this opportunity to step up a little bit. But, you know, one, to be selected for that. And two, for you to step into that. And when given the opportunity to ask questions on behalf of other people, like 
to do that. Um, where do you think that comes from? Like, is this, you know, how your parents were with you or other family members or teachers? Like, did people start to recognize that you had this? I mean, that's a, what are you, like nine, 10 years old, right? Like people, you know, sometimes aren't quite vocal at that point. Boy, you, you asked such great questions. I had a really fantastic first grade teacher, Mrs. Archer. And she just encouraged me, inspired me. I was the first born, uh, I, I'm the eldest of three children. And so my parents had not gone to college and, and uh, they were high school. Their grandparents had not even graduated, be, gone beyond eighth grade. So, you know, very, very rural beginnings. But I, I do recall when I was in first grade, I memorized the Red Fish, Blue Fish book of Dr. Seuss. I memorized the entire thing and she had me share it in front of the class and go into the principal's office in a good way to, to perform it for him. And maybe those early days and, and getting praise from my parents, um, I, I was I was one of those almost straight A students pretty much all through high school. Not 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 all straight A's, but I was always working for it. And usually if I didn't get a get a hundred, I'm like, I think something's wrong with this test. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that you got recognized early on for a talent and given some props and given some motivation to keep doing those kinds of things that, you know, um, we don't know the ripple effect that those moments have. This this Mrs. Archer had on in your life and like how that may may have led to who you were just even a few years later that your your fellow classmates were able to recognize that in you. Yeah, that's really good to to think about that and uh, to even just to think about the growing up. I in my area of Atlanta where where I grew up, the high school was considered the bottom of the bottom for high schools. Uh, and and the county was the worst of the all metro Atlanta counties, and so by some miracle I did get into Georgia Tech, and and I did I did well there at Georgia Tech, and then years later I got into Harvard for the MBA program, and these were just dreams that uh, a little girl living in a trailer park when I when I my first few years never never would have imagined, nor nor would my parents, so they were quite proud. Yeah, no, it's hard to. Um it's hard to have a vision or a dream beyond your own reality because you can't see around the corner. You don't know what else is even out there. Um, at, you know, I don't know, like 12, 13 years old, did you have a sense of what you would be growing up? Was there a path that was starting to like be in front of you? Maybe not one of your choosing, but maybe that one that was most clear. Well, I did start showing a lot of strength in math, which until that time was my very least favorite subject. But uh, in algebra, things just magically started uh, clicking for me. And, oh, okay, this makes sense. It's like a puzzle. You can put it together. There is a, a right answer and anything else is not right. And you can usually figure out multiple ways to get there. And so math uh, followed by calculus and physics did turn into pretty strong areas of mine. And so that paved the way for me to go to Georgia Tech. And it was at Georgia Tech that I had a very close friend who went to Harvard Business School, which I had never even, I had never even heard of. I, I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, I, I'd heard of an MBA before, but I, I didn't know Harvard Business School was a big deal. And I got to know more about it. And that's why I even applied. It's the only school I applied to. I thought, well, if I get in, great. If not, consider other options. Yeah. When you were heading off to Georgia Tech, did you have a plan for what you were going to major in or what, you know, your path you were going to go on? 
Well, I, I majored in industrial engineering and I, I never changed. I, I did a, what's called the co-op program where I worked every other quarter. I would work a quarter, go to school a quarter. I was very active in the water ski team and water ski club and leading the Southeast, uh, the colleges in the Southeast for what competitive water skiing. Sort of my plan was to go to work for uh, Southern Bell or one of the big companies in, in Atlanta. My mother had risen, again, with just barely a high school degree to executive levels within Southern Bell. And she was definitely an inspiration for me to do well. If you can be a, an engineer, Gina, you just got your, your way paved. So it's been a bit of a disappointment to her that I chose the entrepreneurial path pretty early on. But she's she's understood and supported me all all this way yeah that's the kind of career path that it you know you you pick it and you really there are very specific milestones that you hit and then it's hard to get off of it because you've now done so much towards that ultimate goal how did you kind of get swayed off of this path like i mean you're in an engineering sort of space you had a plan like what started to kind of draw your attention elsewhere well in my days at Georgia Tech, I was very active in supporting the Athletic Association in working with the fundraisers mm. and with the people who donated to the athletic programs. And I realized, hmm, a lot of these people are in real estate and most of them own their own business. And there were some partners with, with the company that I was with, but I, I was I got a nice stable job, but I'm getting these little tiny 3% a year raises. And then I I talked to someone who was already uh, George Tech and Harvard MBA, and he had started a little bank. And this bank, um, they wanted to hire people to work as loan officers in the construction division mm -hmm. for commission. That was risky, but I... I believed I could do it and, and make a whole lot more money. And I did. The first year out, I doubled what I was making with, with the consulting firm. And from there, it was, uh, okay, real estate, entrepreneurship, this, this is the way to go. So it was just seeing these role models and yeah. having them believe in me. It was networking, which I know is something you're really big on. Yeah, I know. It was being exposed to a lot of new ideas. And you mentioned co-ops. So I am spent 20 years in the Boston area. Northeastern University has a very strong co-op culture. So I'm very familiar with that idea. Did having the opportunity to work throughout your undergrad like help you make these decisions? Yes, that was wonderful. I had great opportunities with General Electric, Georgia Power, Southern Company, uh, the federal government. These were really great opportunities that opened my mind a lot. And interestingly, they kept me on the path of staying in industrial engineering. So it was kind of a surprise that just really three years out, I said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those those opportunities were fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's it gives you a sense of what you're really getting yourself into. But you you didn't really have opportunities to try anything outside of that field until you started to meet these people through fundraising, which is interesting because that was you putting yourself out there to help. And that opened up some new new pathways for you. Did you have entrepreneurs in your life, though? I mean, it, it, it's hard to, like, conceptualize this. I mean, these people are probably, like, you know, two times more or more your age, the people you're first meeting. So it might still feel like a very far off thing. 
when did it start to be something that you thought was even more for you? Not just that you would be, you know, consulting within a company, but it would be your company. Like when did that start to take shape and what kind of network did you build around yourself to make that more of a reality? Well, that was really, it, it would probably go back to my, my very close friend that I, that I dated for many years who did go on to, to Harvard Business School. And through him and seeing what he and his, well, what his family had done, that I really was exposed more to entrepreneurship and the possibility that, it, that I could do it. I think one of the experiences that I had consistently with those big companies was, to me, it was not exciting. And, and that's one of the reasons also that I, that I chose more of an entrepreneurial path. I really wanted to be in charge of my life, in charge of my, in control of my destiny, in control of my income. And so when I, I, I did uh, try an entrepreneurial venture even before I went to Harvard, and that was I started a note-taking service at Georgia Tech. So this you got to really roll the clock back. This is before internet, before computers and on every desk. Literally, we hired, I was in, in partnership with a couple of friends of mine. We hired students who were good students to go to the class, take really good notes, take them to the Kinkos, get copies made that people who are our subscribers could buy those notes from us each time. So that was uh, that was my first real entrepreneurial venture. And and it was a good one. And And so... I've definitely stuck with that. And fast forward today, 30 years, um, this is my 30th year of being an, an entrepreneur. And so I'm so excited. And, and I love that, that Terry and I started Stark Raving Entrepreneurs because that's sort of that, just that title sort of embodies the underlying philosophy that he and I both have. That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's amazing the longevity you've had. And I'm sure what you've done to earn money over the years has changed a lot. We'll talk through that a little bit. But this uh, this note taking service clearly you saw a um, a need in the market <laughs> and a way you can fulfill it, um, which is pretty cool. I actually, I mean, my claim to fame, my first business card was when I was in high school. My cousin was living with us for a little bit, and uh, I started selling bagel sandwiches. Before that, I sold candy, and then before that, I sold gum. Like it all starts, you know, with gum basically. Um, but by my my junior year of high school, I'm selling, I'm taking orders one day and the next day coming in with sandwiches. So he got cards made up. <laughs> so very, which is a really, you know, my parents were supportive. I mean, my mom was always like, what about? And then I'd be like, dad, what do you think? And he'd like help me figure out around that rule. <laughs> um, so, I mean, then I, I went off and got into uh, nonprofit. <laughs> which is another way of putting entrepreneurial skills to the test. It's just not the money you're earning yourself. Um, it took me a while to kind of come back in. So it's interesting that you hadn't brought, been brought up sort of with all those influences, but you saw the opportunity in, in college. And then later on, you're like, okay, this is the thing I really want to do. Um, did you go to the MBA program specifically because you wanted to go into entrepreneurship? Was that sort of more defined? Like you wanted to have stronger business skills to know what business was like? Yes, that was definitely my my path. It, my path at that time was real estate and entrepreneurship. I I think I was the vice the president of the entrepreneurship club during my second year, and uh, that's definitely what I wanted to do. Now, interestingly, after I graduated, one of my good friends said, "Gina, what if you had not spent all that money and time at Harvard and you had just started a business two years ago?" I'm like, oh, uh, I don't I don't know. <laughs> 
I wish you had uh, shared that thought with me two years ago if you had that, but it was a really fantastic experience. And entrepreneurship was not that big of a deal at Harvard Business School at that time. In fact, there were only two entrepreneurial classes that were straight entrepreneur, entrepreneurial finance and entrepreneurial marketing or something like that. They've gotten much more entrepreneurial now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds like you were probably on the front of that wave, that level of interest. Um, which is exciting, but also can be a little daunting because the, the resources aren't all there. But now you have like the Harvard moniker attached to your name, which is a lot of credibility. You have the MBA knowledge. And I mean, going to any school like that also is about the connections and the network. How did having those new connections help you as you got started? What was the first uh, service or program that you were trying to sell? Well, right out of Harvard Business School, I went to work for Cushman and Wakefield. Mm -hmm. And they're huge commercial real estate company. In case someone doesn't know that, they're they're quite big. And I I worked in a number of different areas inside there. So working with people on retail, industrial, and office office space, as well as selling the big buildings. Uh, they they crafted a really interesting program. I think I was the first person to go through it, a two-year program where I worked in all different areas of the firm and mm -hmm. really got to understand commercial real estate at a, at a strong, strong level. From there, I did leave and start my own mortgage company, real estate, commercial real estate company. It was mostly residential real estate company, though. I, I bought a Century 21 franchise. And so, but we did have a commercial division as well. So that, that entrepreneur in me just kept coming out. I, I remember one day sitting in a meeting, a marketing meeting, and, and I had what I thought was a fantastic idea. I mean, I just, I was so passionate about it. I loved it. And the, the boss said, no, we're going to go another direction. And that moment, I just said, I'm going to have a real hard time working for other people. <laughs> <laughs> I know now I've heard a lot of people talk about being unemployable, <laughs> which yes. sounds like you hit that moment. <laughs> Early on, yes, Early on. a good 30 years ago. Yeah, so, I mean, so, yeah, you're taking us back a, a ways, is what it sounds like. This is the 90s? Is this? Yes, that would have been, I graduated from HBS in 90 and started that job in 90. So, and again, coming up on 93 was when I started my first uh, Gina, uh, Boris Carr and Associates, another friend. We started a real estate company, started my mortgage company. And then in 94, I bought the Century 21 with my now ex-husband. So what's fascinating about this is that having known you for a while and known of you for longer, I had no idea that real estate was your background. <laughs> so clearly it's not what you're known for today. Like There's a lot that I can think of that I would say you were known for. When did that start to shift for you? When did real estate not become the main focus of your business? Well, as part of Part of marketing my real estate company, uh, you know, a lot of real estate people do farming. So they send out all these mailers to people in their community. Well, I, I took that another level. I started a community magazine and my real estate company was the only one that could advertise in the magazine. Now we had a lot of other advertisers. It was, it was basically the storefront for local dentists and uh, chiropractors and all kinds of different business people that didn't necessarily have a storefront. And we came up with a great little formula of how it would work. And so our subscribers were the advertisers. The people in the community got it, whether they wanted it or not. It was direct mailed to everybody in the community. So thousands and thousands that, that we sent out. 
it went so well, we started a second one. And then people started coming to us saying, how do you do that? So we franchised that concept. Wow. Now, when we franchised that concept, the franchise sales started taking off. And that's really where my heart was at that time, because I'd done the real estate for a while. And it, real estate's great, but there's a lot of stress. There's a, It's 24-7, you know, deals are going south. And even though I was the owner broker, I had to be available to, to help my agents, to help my team members. And also in the post 9-11 world, I realized, okay, these going to the closings and getting these big checks, that's nice. But getting these little subscriptions, people were paying us anywhere from $100 a month to $3,000 a month. And most of them were around the $500 to $1,000 a month range. Getting a little bit from a lot of people, that, that just kept chugging right along. And we really didn't lose any traction at all in the magazine world. But in our, in our real estate and mortgage companies, everything came to a, a dead halt for six months. And that's when I started really understanding the power of recurring revenue. In my, in my introduction, you mentioned the recurring revenue. I mean, those are just two of my favorite words. And so that's where my real estate company at the end of 2005. So right before the real downturn, I, I got lucky. I did not see that coming, but I uh, focused my attention on the franchise sales. That's such a creative um, outlet for marketing real estate. Um, as you know, I, I, you know, before the pandemic, I taught people how to network at events. And, um, for a long time, um, my like bad example, well, even not even for a long time, even to today, my worst examples of networking are real estate people who like come into an event and spray and pray their way around. And like one guy, I, he, he gave me a card and he was waiting for mine. And I didn't give it. He hovered near all my conversations until he finally cornered me and asked for my card. And I gave it to him. And then he proceeded to send me a really poorly formatted, like, you're now on my list email. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it was just sort of like, this was so, ugh. and yet I've along the way met some amazing real estate professionals who I ended up interviewing for this show, um, including the real estate uh, professional who sold me, the realtor who sold me my current house. I'm working to get him on the show because they're doing really cool things. But this magazine is an idea I've never heard of because you're providing a service to your greater, the greater community. And I did something like this when I lived on Long Island, New York. I, um, I had a, an email list that initially, you know, was for our friends, but it became this huge community list that I was copying and pasting 200 emails at a time into an AOL <laughs> back <laughs> in the 90s when you really had no other options. Um, but then, you know, people pay attention because you're providing them a service. And they're more likely to refer you. I mean, you're all the smart things that real that not just real estate professionals, but any entrepreneur should be thinking about. You were you were leading with that. And I love that you then franchised it. And now you have the subscription service and the recurring revenue. All the things you happened into are the best practices that everybody today is striving for. And you you caught on to it and it, you dove your energy, you put your energy into it further. Um, how did that then become the next service? Like was it teaching people how to do it because you were so good at it and people wanted to learn? Like, how did you start to think about the next level of that business? Well, that was in, t in teaching the franchise franchisees. And unfortunately, as that was really getting rolling, my marriage was unrolling, mm. unraveling. And my, my now late 
ex-husband and I were in business together. And so one of us kind of needed to step away and, and I stepped away and he, he kept it going. I, I ended up spinning that into starting my own consulting business, uh, marketing consulting, because I really understood small business owners and their yeah. needs based on all the work that I had done and the work that I had done for myself to really make myself going from nothing in that community in real estate to within a pretty short period of time being one of the top, top three. And so uh, how to really focus on a niche, dominate a niche, uh, serve the people. You, you mentioned serving. And certainly that's something that I think is incredibly important for leaders and business owners to think about. It's not just it's not just the vision that we talked about in the beginning and, and where I want to go. It's the listening and understanding the people that you serve, that you want to serve, the people that you love and want to, want to make their lives better and understanding what problems they're having and what solutions you can come up with, which again, when I started the magazines, it was pre-internet days. And so people didn't know what times the local churches started and where to go for the PTA meetings. And when baseball started, all these different cool things that were going on in our community. And we we were totally focused on the good news, sharing the good news of what's happening. So what year is this that you go out to do this particular kind of supporting um, small business? Well, I pivoted to starting my own consulting business back in 2009. Interesting. It's a, it's a interesting year because a lot of people, not for your reason, you have a unique reason, but a lot of people got into entrepreneurship around that time. And there was also a real burgeoning moment. I feel like entrepreneurship, you know, people like basically lost their jobs in 2008, 2009. And the, the quote-unquote security of having a nine-to-five job started to get questioned a little bit. Um, did you see a, a sort of surge of activity as you were doing this? Like you, you already had a lot of years of experience by that point. And you also had all those contacts from the days of doing some, basically working with all these small businesses, these main street businesses. Um, you know, what were the networks like at that time? Were there, were there new opportunities for like where you would go and get support and connect? Well, I had, Again, as part of the real estate business and serving the community, it was a it was a new master plan community in Atlanta called Town Lake. Uh, it's a, on the northwest part of Atlanta. I had started a with my ex husband a Town Lake Business Association, mm. so I had a lot of uh, strong ties there. And then I I love people. I love interacting with people. So I was still very active in my Georgia Tech alumni community mm -hmm. and my Harvard Business School community. And so combined with those, and by that time, I was also very active in the National Speakers Association, which is where I met you. Mm -hmm. And so with that combination and starting to understand, oh, internet marketing, this is something <laughs> I think I could do. This is taking a magazine, which is geographically focused and limited. And can I take those concepts and for myself, as well as my clients, help people understand how to serve their communities and how to really expand using this powerful tool, the World Wide Web. Mm. Yeah. And here we are, right? <laughs> so much more has changed. What drew you to the National Speakers Association? When did you start seeing yourself as a speaker? Mm. I had built my mortgage and real estate business along with the franchise sales 
by speaking at a lot of organizations, the service clubs and the local business associations, the Chamber of, of Commerce. So that was just something that was very natural for me, I guess, going back to my days of leadership in high school and junior high, well, junior high and, and college and such. And, and certainly one of the things at Harvard Business School that they're known for is Socratic method. Uh, you have to speak most every day in class uh, to get your point out, whatever it is that, that you're wanting to share. So I, I think speaking, I won't say it came naturally for me, but it sort of came naturally for me. And so I had started a Cherokee County Toastmasters that was in our area of the Town Lake area. I had started a Toastmasters and in that Toastmasters, a, a good friend of mine named Joe Gandolfo that you may know, he was also active in the TEDx with me recently. He he invited me, the National Speakers Association was having a meeting, their big national meeting, international meeting in Atlanta. So just go down, check it out. And oh my gosh, uh, just walking in the door that first day, I just felt like these are my peeps. I I love being around these people. So, so uplifting, so positive, such bright business minds. And I've been to every, every uh, one of the national conferences since then. I've spoken at various chapters around the country and different associations around the world, including Singapore, multiple times in Australia. And it's just, I, I often joke that most every good thing in my life has come from National Speakers Association. I don't doubt it. That sounds amazing. You've also given back tremendously, as you're saying. I mean, everything you're describing there is also, you've been getting, but you've been also giving as well back to the, the association. Um, it's interesting that you um, you had a desire to like build something and you went and did, you created a Toastmasters. Um, again, you already have the skills to create something from scratch and attract people and market it and all that, right? So like, you, you almost were like, well, this has to happen and I'm going to pull it together, not knowing the ripple effect that was going to have to open new doors to NSA and now, you know, have speaking be a big part of your business and speakers be a big part of your audience um, over the years. Uh, what's the, what's the latest? Like what, you know, I feel like you and Terry are always in the cutting edge of technology and trying things out. And particularly he is like a kid in candy. So when it comes to every new piece of tech that comes out, he's always dabbling. But I feel like you're always trying to figure like, well, how does this actually apply to like the good marketing skills that we're supposed to have? And like, how does actually support people's businesses? And like you come up, you know, with those angles. There's a lot even in the last three or four years that's changed about the landscape. Where where are you now focusing your time? And I, I want to anchor this with the fact that you were writing about clout when it was a big deal. <laughs> you know, it's no longer a big deal, but the concepts are still a big deal. Um, you know, even if the program went away. How does this all now apply with all these, we're talking AI and Web3 and everything else? Yes, well, definitely uh, always fascinated by the latest in technology as it relates to helping people grow their businesses. And what I'm focused on right now, and Terry as well, is artificial intelligence and using these AI-powered super tools to help content creators, speakers, authors, thought leaders, coaches, to create more content, to really build their brand much more strongly so that they can help more people, have more impact, and make more money. And these tools, we, we focus on the four different areas of text, audio, video, and images. And my main focus is how to help people harness those tools 
in building their streams of recurring revenue, i.e. membership programs, online courses, that sort of thing. So that's where my focus is. And I tell you, Robbie, this is this is such an exciting time. I feel like I'm watching the internet come to into the world all over again because that's that's where we are. We're, we're basically like the early 90s, 92, 93 for the internet with these AI-powered tools because the internet had been out for decades. I don't know when it started, but it had been out available for decades for government and, and education for, for colleges and such. But it was only when the portals that made it easy for people to access it became available, such as Internet Explorer and Netscape in the early 90s. And then it made it possible for most everybody to be able to access those tools. And, and that's what we have right now. Artificial intelligence has been out there for a long time. If you've ever bought anything on Amazon, artificial intelligence is definitely working in your favor, I would say. If you've ever posted on Facebook or or LinkedIn, artificial intelligence, that's what's powering those algorithms to decide what to show to your friends, what to show to you. And so it's it's working on your behalf and for, before, for and against you in some ways. So that's what's happened right now. The, the November 30th of 2022, that the gateway to chat GPT three was opened and made it really easy for people to access these tools. And from then it's just spawned a number of other tools. Here we are in early 2023 and thousands of applications have already been layered on top of those initial tools to make them easier to use. And and much like the iPhone was a pretty cool tool, but it was all the apps that became available for the iPhone that made it something most people can't live without. Now, I'm on an Android now, but uh, I still appreciate an iPhone and maybe I'll go back to it next time. (laughs) My wife and I are a cross-platform couple. Ah, <laughs> um, which is you know sometimes useful. So um, I love that description, and I think the analogies you just shared really bring to light like where we are contextually. And uh, it happens that November thirtieth till about a month ago, I was heads down working on a book, and so the world exploded with ChatGPT and AI, and I just kept repeating myself, "Nope, that's a double obstacle." Nope, that's a that's a shiny object. Nope, I don't I don't need to know that. I don't. Need, and you know, the book got done and out. And then I was like, ah. Oh. So the first time I used ChatGPT was I was trying to think of keywords to publish my book under on Amazon, and my brain was a little bit uh, empty. <laughs> I was tired. I was like done. You know, like I had been doing this book for a long time. So I guessed a bunch of things, and I had this program I was testing to see how they would rank. And they weren't ranking that great, but I, I like couldn't think of any more. I, I was like, I, I can think of a six. So I took my description and my title and I put it to ChatGPT and I said, give me just keywords. And it did. And some of those keywords were a lot better than the ones that I had come up with as far as this ranking tool. And I thought, I mean, that is the most minimal usage, but I was like, oh, I just scratched the surface. My wife's been diving into it. It's just, It's like, it's happening on every level everywhere. And I really appreciate you and Terry Brock, I realize we haven't said his last name yet. <laughs> we will put his name and his information in the show notes, are doing a cr- tremendous service with Stark Raving uh, entrepreneurs, um, creating a space for these kinds of conversations and bringing in experts to, to talk about these topics. Um, 
I actually just want to ask you a question though about networking specifically, because you're incredible. I think the two of you have been great about building community. You have sort of your inner circle of people and you know, um, you know, your second and third layers of people, maybe the people that you see once a year at a conference or that you work with five years ago, but you haven't had a reason to recently, but you like each other. This is preface here that you enjoy each other's company. How do you think about nurturing or sustaining those kinds of weaker connections, any habits, philosophies, practices? Well, I, I like to reach out to people and try to get to know them better. It, in my uh, perfect world, I reach out after I've met someone at a conference and have a one-on-one virtual copy with them. I'm not so big on getting in person for the most part these days, uh, you know, COVID has certainly made it very acceptable for people to have video calls and such. And so I, I do like doing that. And then I host weekly events. Uh, you mentioned uh, our, our Star Craving Entrepreneurs. And so we're hosting free training weekly, things that we're interested in. And I, I let people know about it and invite them to come join us. And the people who are interested come and then we take things to the next level. Sometimes they remain in our free program. Sometimes they join on a paid basis. Sometimes they take special courses that we're offering. And uh, then whenever we're in different cities, we usually host what we call an executive roundtable. And so, again, mostly pre-COVID days, and we've done a few since since then, but we would just get together with people that, that we uh, know and invite them to bring a friend or two. We talk about best practices, what they're doing to build their business. And uh, we've always had a lot of fun with that. And that's been really good for nurturing those relationships. Both are such great examples. Um, I mean, like you, hosting things regularly, you know, it used to be for me always dinners, um, either in relation to a conference or dinners in whatever city I was living in. And now being able to just, you know, gather people globally, you know, bring people from wherever to a virtual program. I think the fact that you're providing consistent value in this way, you know, even if I don't make things for a while, I keep getting the invitation and it's, and it actually it's on my calendar as a reoccurring. Um, and I'm always like, can you know, did anything, did anything else like land on top of this week? <laughs> That's kind of what I look, I go, is it, did it have, you know, and I like, what's the topic, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that, that, that sort of ongoing invitation is really helpful to keep you top of mind. Um, and that you are providing a great service. And I love this executive roundtable idea. Um, it sounds like a, a one-off, like a pop-up mastermind kind of space where you just like bring people together to have this like, you know, intense focus, learning, growing, community building opportunity. Um, and most people don't have these skill sets that you and I have around convening and are always looking to be invited. And I will tell you the honest truth that I often convene because it's serving me to not have to wait for other people to invite me. <laughs> like, I just want to know what's going to happen. Um, years ago, the la we're about to go back to your hometown now uh, of Orlando for the NSA conference. The last time there was an Epcot, you know, gathering afterwards. I organized a group of eight to go to Epcot together. I spent the three days asking people if they wanted to hang out with me. And ragtag group of people who didn't know each other met in the lobby. And by the end of the, the day, we were like all best friends, you know, because we'd spent the day in Epcot together. But the idea of like wondering who I was going to go to Epcot with, <laughs> to like wondering what was going to happen, I was like, no, 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 let's organize them something, you know, like make, make a thing happen. And you're a, you, you're a, a make a thing happen kind of person. 
So I'm like not surprised that your your answer to like networking is make a thing happen and then people will will be attracted in. Any other uh, like little tidbits? Well, yeah, Robbie, I clearly we're cut from the same same cloth. And <laughs> I was just at a conference this past weekend. And to your point, I, I'm just always very proactive putting together my own my own little party uh, to an extent. So walking, uh, it's lunchtime. I just look around at the, I didn't know anybody there and it was in Orlando and that's kind of surprising. But I I just um, asked the, the people who were sitting near me, hey, you want to go to lunch? And so before long, I had a table of four the first day and the second day, I have brand new friends that I would not have known. And of course, most people, a lot of people are just kind of nervous or shy and they aren't comfortable doing that but they're looking for someone to lead the way. They're looking for someone to say, hey, let's get let's get acquainted here. And so I've found that people are generally grateful for things like that. And it's just very much in my wheelhouse. I'm kind of not happy if I'm not planning something, which is great for having a weekly weekly training sessions that we, we have. So we have those, we have uh, a lot of virtual events. Uh, we have a lot of in-person events as well. And that's just, um, I, I, I like, I don't like details, but I do like organizing things and, and, and it all just flows because that's, that's my wheelhouse. I love it. I love it. So uh, let's say it's a year from now, Gina, and I suddenly remember that I interviewed you uh, this time a year ago. And we're talking about all that you've accomplished in that year. What are we going to be toasting a year from now? What are you most looking forward to? Oh, boy. Well, let's put it in numbers. I would say that I have directly impacted at least uh, a thousand people, which I know has a huge ripple effect because of the people that I help. They help a lot of other people. So that I've directly impacted a thousand people who have taken one of our AI courses and that um, that I know that it's helped them in, in their lives. You know, just the example that you shared of putting so much time and effort into writing your book, which is fantastic and, and just a great book. Uh, you, you can write a book in four minutes. Now, it's not as good by far, but you can have something that you can work from and massage and add your stories and add your examples. Um, not not as customized as, as your book, which is quite fantastic and so helpful. But uh, so I would say that I have impacted at least a thousand and maybe that's kind of being thinking small. But I, I think if I could say that a thousand people, thousand people, different people registered for one of our courses on artificial intelligence, I would feel pretty good about that. Wow, that's great. I, I can't wait to celebrate that with you and also help you through through this. So people who are listening, if you've been wondering about this whole AI thing, ChatGBT has been coming across you know, your inbox and the airwaves in some way or another. I think that what Gina and Terry are doing are, is a phenomenal space. It's got me thinking, oh, you know, it, it, I would rather sort of learn in a community than dabble at this point. Because I'm more interested in the application of something than just to know something, just to know it. So I like how you all are thinking about how does this apply to a business context and not just, you know, a nice thing to know about. Um, because that's where it's distracting to like your bottom line. But this might be a new revenue generating thing or it might help you run your business more smoothly or be more efficient about something. 
So I, I love what you're all doing. We're definitely going to put a lot of information in the uh, the show notes. So speaking of which, how can people find you and follow your work? Well, one of the best ways right now would be if they're interested in, in artificial intelligence, we have a little toolkit that we've put together with examples of the best tools that, that we like right now. And it's going to be updated as, as those tools change, but and examples of how to use them. And you can get there by going to AIToolsforbiz.com. And you can use the number four or the word for AIToolsforbiz.com. And then if you want to join us for our weekly training sessions with fantastic trainers and spokespeople like Robbie, uh, of course, nobody's like Robbie, but fantastic people, it's uh, starkravingevent.com. Amazing. I'm going to put all those links in the show notes at onthechmooze.com. Gina, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an, uh, just a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you, Robbie. Thank you for helping me walk down memory lane and think about all these things that happened uh, throughout my life and have helped me become the person that I am, good and uh, maybe not so good in some areas, but it's been it's been quite a walk. I'm, I'm a young 62. I, I feel like I'm going on 30, and uh, I'm just already... I, it was funny to think about the gardening you know, uh, your audience doesn't, but I'm, I'm plant-based. I'm vegan. I'm, I have a balcony garden. I'm very big on gardening these years, but many years I had nothing to do with gardening. So it's interesting to see that I've come back to that. And I never even thought of that. Yeah. Until look, your, today. your roots literally came back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm double certified in bad dad jokes. <laughs> Thanks, Gina. <laughs> Thank you, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gina. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 332. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.